If you have a Bible, please go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 8, as that's where we're going to be this morning. If we haven't met, my name is James. Now, with the advent of social media, that kind of changed how people do a lot of things. Like, that, that's how a lot of people share their news, what's going on in their life. And so you'll see people will go there, and it's like, ah, I got a new job, I'm in a relationship, I, uh, I've gotten engaged, we bought a new home, I, I got a promotion at work. Maybe it's we're, we're expecting a child, and this is where people go to share their good news. And what do people tend to do? They go, that's awesome, congratulations. But at the same time, people will go to social media, and they share their not-so-great news where I've seen people share about the loss of pets, homes, jobs, relationships, loved ones, children. And so there's some painful things that people put out there. And and what do people tend to write? Like, we're like, okay, I've got to acknowledge this in some way. And so kind of the standard, what's developed over years is like thoughts and prayers. And it's interesting that, that even unreligious people go to religion to offer words of comfort, like, like prayers. Now, it's like, I I know some atheists and agnostics, I don't know if they realize the irony of writing that, but they have put that on people's things, where they're going through hard times, and they go, thoughts and prayers. Now, why do they go to religion for this? Well, it's because their worldview fails to offer really any hope or comfort in those times. And so, like, if they kind of lived out their worldview, when somebody's like, ah, I've lost this person or this thing, like, if they're like, well, it's only the strong who survive, that's not that comforting, is it? Nobody's going to be like, when you wrote, life is meaningless on my, my social post, man, that was like medicine to my aching soul. No, like we want words of comfort. So it's like thoughts and prayers. Now, if that tragedy or that, that bad thing happens to us personally or somebody that's close to us, what we'll do is we'll break out a paraphrased version of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we say this, God works all things together for good. God works all things together for good. And, and like we, we want to go, okay, God's at work here. A few years ago, I knew a guy who was applying for a job, and if he got this job, it was going to change his life drastically. It was better pay. It had opportunities for him to be moving up through the, the company. And so he goes through the process, tries to get the job, but he doesn't get it. And he was disappointed. But afterwards, people would ask him kind of those awkward conversations. So how'd the interview go? He'd have to say, I didn't get it. But then he would go, God's got a plan. God's got a plan. And he would say it multiple times. And when disaster or, or maybe disappointment strikes in our lives, we kind of get anxious. We can feel some, some fear. We're desperate to go, okay, somebody's in control. That, 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 that something good can come out of this. We try to reassure ourselves by going, there's a plan. And like we will find comfort knowing that somebody is kind of behind that proverbial steering wheel of life, our life, guiding us to somewhere better, to a better place. And it feels better if that's somebody that we can trust. Because here's the thing, if nobody is in control over everything, we have a reason to fear. Because it could turn out bad we'd have to conclude at the very least that the pains and the problems that we've gone through in this world, they were pointless, that, that they served no purpose at all, that they were truly meaningless in the end. But if somebody is in control, we can have faith. We can have hope that it may end well. 
that if somebody is in control, sovereign over all things, maybe we don't have to fear that our pain will have been pointless. But, but that in the end, the hard times, the difficult times that we went through, that we'll actually be able to look back and go, it served a purpose. There was a greater good that came out of it. And so if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And Paul, he writes, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, verse 28, this is a verse that a lot of Christians go to in difficult times. It's like, I'm needing hope. Your Bible might be like one of those things in the back. It's like, need hope. And it will say Romans chapter 8, 28. And it's gotten a lot of people through dark times difficult times. And then verses 29 and 30, man, those scream that God has a plan, that there's a purpose, where it uses these words called for new predestined. It's like, it's, Paul's going like, God knows what he's doing. He's, he's in control here. And so when we say that God's got a plan, we're not wrong. But, but here's the thing, like, we tend to go, okay, Where's God in all of this when things aren't going according to plan? Now, I want to tell you, God is not unaware of your life. God is not unconcerned about your life. Like, what does Jesus say? He says, look at the flowers. Look at the birds. Your father, he takes care of them. Don't you think he cares about you too? But when we envision God's plan for our life, it might actually be different than what God's got planned for our life. Think about the theme of your prayers. Our, our prayers tend to center around this, that we ourselves, our family, our friends would be healthy, would be great if we could be happy, and we'd like to have a comfortable life. And so we kind of present these requests to God, and we go, God, look at my plan. This is a great plan, isn't it? Don't you agree? Okay, you make it happen. Now, God, again, he, he's concerned about us. And it's not wrong to necessarily ask for these things, but at the same time, God might not give them sometimes because God's plans and his purposes, they're so much bigger. They're so much better than our temporary earthly comfort. If you have your Bible, turn to James chapter 4, verse 14. And James writes this, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, I've used this illustration before, but it works, and so we're going to keep going with it. Now, here, here's what God's saying. This, that's your life. It's like, you are a mist. It's like, that's you. This makes you feel significant, doesn't it? And it's like, it's not like here today and gone tomorrow. It's like here today and gone a few seconds later in God's perspective of time. But as Human beings, what we tend to do is we focus on our, our mist, our 70 or 80 years, and we kind of focus on that, and we're driven on, on that, and it's got to be great. And God cares about that mist, but God also cares about what comes after your mist. He's very concerned about what comes after that. And so if you read your Bible from cover to cover, if you were to go through it all, one thing you should walk away from it knowing is this, that God wants to get you home with him. And God wants to see you fully mature. He wants to get you home, and he wants to see you fully mature. And so if I was to kind of summarize and paraphrase Romans 8, 28 to 30, I would put it this way. 
that God's purpose is to gather together a family of believers who he can love and bless as his children and who will love him as their heavenly father and glorify him forever. That God the Father, he's not trying to kick the children out of the house. He wants the children back in the house. He wants a loving family under his roof. But he wants those children to grow up. He wants them to mature. And so this is God's purpose, his plan from the very beginning. You read Genesis 1 through 3, what you're going to see is that things were much different than they are now. That God, he, he creates everything and he's going, this is good, this is good. And then with man and woman, Adam and Eve in the garden, like you read that in those chapters, and like, man, God is present. So present that it describes them being able to hear his footsteps as he walks through the garden in the cool of the day. And that, like, that's just beautiful imagery. But that's not our experience right now. We experience something different. There's pains and there's problems. And, and it goes back to this, that man had a choice. Would we obey God? He gives us one command, but man breaks that one command and sin enters the world and along comes all the pain and the problems with it, that it's our sin, it separates us from God and his goodness. Now, if you go to Romans chapter one and you read from Romans one, one through to 827, one of the things you're gonna see is this. Paul's going that through Jesus Christ, God has been at work to redeem us, to bring us back into relationship through his son, Jesus Christ, to adopt us as his sons and daughters, like verse 29 is talking about. That through Jesus Christ, God has worked to bring us into his family and to bring us into his heavenly home. Now, the question that comes up a lot of the time with Romans 8, 28 to 30 is this. How much control is God exercising over our lives and our daily affairs? How much control do I have over my life and, more importantly, my eternity? The question is this. How much does free will factor into all these things that God's trying to do? Now, if you're, you're new to Christianity, you're checking out the church, I just want to, like, you're probably looking at us going, man, you guys have it all together. You're perfect. I assure you, we are not. Um, give it time. You spend time with Christians. You're going to find that, Eventually, um, we have some family arguments. We get into it at times. And, and, and sometimes, like mostly passive-aggressive, we, we don't deal with it well, sometimes verbal. I have heard of incidents where it has turned physical. And it can be over things like, man, what color is the carpet going to be in the new church? What songs are we going to sing? What instruments are we going to use? It can be over doctrinal issues as well. Now, again, these things happen, and churches split and get into um, arguments over one, with one another and over this, like these, these verses, 29 and 30. And they kind of surround this thing, predestination and election. You may have heard these before. I'll say this, very smart and very godly people differ on this. And so anytime we, we talk about things like this, you've heard me say this, if you've been in HCC for a while, I'll say this that there are closed-handed issues in the church and there are open-handed issues in the church. And so these closed-handed issues are essentials. They're these things of primary importance that we're not going to let our grip go on them. And these are things that are non-negotiable because they're issues of biblical authority. And so these things would be like the divinity of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the way of salvation. And, and these are core beliefs of Christianity. And I know it's going to sound rude, especially in 2022 to say it, but it's like, you don't hold to these things. We don't really consider you to be a Christian. 
Now, the open-handed issues are the non-essentials. They're of secondary importance. These are things that we can debate, we can discuss, we can disagree on them, but we don't divide the body of Christ over them because they're matters of style. It's preference. It's opinion. And so what we're about to talk about right now is a secondary open-handed issue that, like, we can differ on this. We're still the family of God. We're still brothers and sisters in Christ. And so these words, called for new and predestined, they've caused a lot of division in the body of Christ because there's two primary ways that Christians tend to approach this topic. Um, That is kind of summed up in election. And it's a complex issue, and I'm keeping it pretty simple, uh, but, but let's go. So God alone, this is the first view, that God alone chooses who goes to heaven and who does not. And so some Christians will say that God is predetermined, he is uh, predestined, he has chosen some people to be saved and others not to be. So it's kind of this, that if God elects you to be saved, he chooses you to be saved, you really don't have any choice, you're going to be saved. If God um, does not elect you to be saved, you don't really have much choice in the matter either, You're, you're not going to be saved. Essentially it says this, God chooses who will and who will not be saved or who will go to heaven. Now, God, he, he is sovereign. Like Psalm 115, verse 3, it says this, our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. And so, like, God, if he wants to, this is, he, he could choose, like, who's going, who isn't. And he'd be well within his rights as God. But when you read the Bible, you get this sense that God does not show favoritism, that his love is perfect, it's universal. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 it says, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so when we read a verse like this, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine that God is, is picking who's saved and, and who isn't. Now, if you've gone through Core 52, which what something our life groups are using, you might have gotten into this chapter before, and, and it kind of brings up this, this parable of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, and I think it does a great job with it. And, and in Matthew 22, Jesus tells this story. He says there was a king, and he was throwing a banquet, a wedding banquet for his son, and it was going to be a big party, and so he sends out invitations, um, and his servants with invitations all over the place, inviting people to come to the banquet. And some people, they just say, no, they're going, I'm busy, I got other things to do, don't want to make it. Some actually beat up the servants. But then there are others who receive the invitation and they choose to come. Now you know that that an invitation is not necessarily the same thing as going. Like somebody invites you on a Friday night, they're like, ah, we're going to get together for, for, for food and games at my place, it's a little bit impromptu, but you're like, ah, I've already got my pajamas on, I know it's 6.30, I'm going to turn you down, too, too comfortable, don't want to put real pants back on. Like you get invited, but you don't necessarily go. And so anytime you receive an invitation, whether it's to a party or to a wedding or whatever it is, you have to decide, what am I going to do with this invitation? Now Jesus ends that parable by saying this, for many are invited, but few are chosen. And the word chosen can also be translated as elected. And here Jesus is explaining the basic process of election. You get invited, and you choose to attend. You come. And those who receive an invite and choose to come are the elect in this story. Now this is, this is the second view, the one that we would kind of hold or gravitate towards here at, at HCC. 
we would say that while God is sovereign and he's at work in our lives, drawing and pursuing us towards himself, each individual who hears the gospel still has a choice to repent or reject um, Jesus as Savior. They, they get to choose whether or not to accept him, that invitation. Like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, and there it says, God wants all people to be saved, and he made it possible through his son, Jesus Christ. And, and remember, what is one of the main themes of, of Scripture? You're going, God wants a loving relationship with his children. And so we would say, we would believe that God gives every person who hears the gospel this choice whether or not they want to believe and accept that gift of forgiveness and relationship. We say God's not excluding anybody from the kingdom, but yet despite all that God does to invite some people in, some people choose to exclude themselves. They reject God's invitation. So it's, it's essentially this. God has set the parameters of salvation, and he invites everybody in. But we have to choose whether or not we're going to step into that and accept that. Now, what do you do with this idea of foreknowledge and predestination like we're limited by space and time like you're looking at time while on the timeline so i hope this helps but imagine that this ruler is all of time i know it's like wow look at it all um but imagine you're right here in time and so right here in 2022 you can look back in history and go okay here's here's what we know happened here's what we we can say has happened with, with pretty good certainty as to what took place. But here, looking forward, I can go, I think this will happen tomorrow. I can speculate. I can guess. But I don't know with certainty what will happen tomorrow. But what you have to understand, God does not view time the same way you view time. Like God is the creator, the author of time. He, he created what we measure time with. And so God is sitting outside of the timeline and he's looking at it all. Yes, he knows the past well. Yes, he knows your present well. But he's also looking further down and he knows your future as well as he knows your now and your past. He's looking at time differently. Uh, this might kind of help explain all of this. A few years ago, I was counseling at Canoe Cove Christian Camp on PEI. I say a few years ago. It was like 15 years ago. Uh, <laughs> kind of getting old. Um, but I was there. And I think it was grade four and five camp. And uh, there was this kid there that week who just loved to play rock, paper, scissors. You know, that game is like, who's going to get the last piece of cake? Or which team gets to go first, get gets to kick the ball or has the ball first in this. And, and you do that. And he, he just wanted to play rock, paper, scissors. So like all day, want to play rock, paper, scissors? Want to play rock, paper, scissors? Like it's easy enough. So we'd be like rock, paper, scissors, rock, paper, scissors, rock, paper, scissors. And we'd go at it. And at the beginning, it was like anybody's game. But it didn't take long for me to go, okay, this kid's got kind of a pattern going here. And at the end of the week, I could win every game. Like I guarantee you I would win every game. Um, and it's like, it wasn't because it was like the kid had some tells that I was like, okay, his eyes do this every time he's going to play paper. It wasn't like, okay, this kid's giving off some serious rock vibes. That's, that's how I know what to play. Is this kid had one move. It was scissors every time. It was like rock, paper, scissors, rock, paper, scissors, rock, paper, scissors. Not the brightest kid. And so at the end of the week, I just knew it was like this kid's going to play scissors and I'd play rock and win every time. Now, I didn't force the kid to play scissors but I knew he was going to play scissors, and I responded with what I knew. And in the same way, God knows what you're going to do before you ever do it. 
This is what the New Testament calls foreknowledge, that from his unique perspective, God knows who will and who won't respond to his invitation. That in his infinite knowledge, God is able to foresee who will accept the offer of salvation that's been made in Jesus Christ. And knowing through his divine omniscience who these individuals are going to be, he has predestined them to be a part of his glorified family through Jesus Christ for the resurrection of the dead that has been established in the pattern of the older brother, Jesus Christ. And so God already knows who will and who will not come to love him. Now, these are kind of the two primary approaches to predestination and election. Some of you are like, you are a nerd, um, and other, you, don't, you don't care. But this is an important thing that we have to deal with when we're looking at verses 29 and 30 and all of this. Now, both sides are going to bring their proofs text to the discussion. Um, there are Christians on both sides. I've got friends on both sides of this. And I'm not going to argue with you on this. Like, you, you want to get into it at the door about this? I'll just kind of smile and nod and go, that's nice. Like, I, we can discuss and debate and dis- disagree, but we're not going to divide and fight over this because unity in the body of Christ is always more important than winning an argument on a secondary matter of opinion. Now, here's where both views find unity. We'll both believe that salvation is found through Jesus Christ alone, and it's the responsibility of a person who would be saved to respond to God's invitation or that call when they hear it. And the reality is that every person, every person responds to the gospel in one of two ways. You either hear the gospel and you believe it, and you put your faith and your trust and you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, or you say no. You say no by going, man, that's foolishness can't believe anybody would actually believe anything about that. You disbelieve it. Or you go, I don't know. And you stay on the fence. And you don't make a decision. But that's a decision. Non-decision is a decision in the end. So God's call must be answered. And forgiveness and entrance into his family is given only to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've never accepted that invitation, if you've been on the fence up to this day, and you're going, I, I don't know what to do with it. I'd encourage you to talk to somebody about it. If you want to accept that invitation, you can speak to me. You can speak to Pastor Greg. You can fill the Connect card at the Welcome Center or online at halifaxchristianchurch.ca. And somebody will follow up with you on that. But rather than fighting about whether our salvation is predestined or if there's free will in it, as disciples of Jesus, let's be faithful to his call to make disciples so that every person out there has the opportunity to make a decision as to who they will call Jesus. Will they accept him or not? Now, God wants to get every person home to see them mature like his son, Jesus Christ. And this is the good news that God is, or the good that God is working towards it. Now, Romans 8.28, this is a verse that's easy to believe when things are good. You get a new job, God is good, look how he's working. you're in a relationship, you get married, God is so good, look how he's working. But when Paul writes this, what he's doing, he's writing to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith, and he's going, no, God's going to use this in the end for good. And it goes beyond persecution, that that God can take our bad situations and use it for good. But, But here's the thing, like if you've lived long enough, you know you don't have to look for suffering. Like suffering is going to find you. It it doesn't take long. And days are going to come where you're going to be hurt. You're going to suffer. You're going to struggle in some way. And when things aren't good, you're going to go, okay, why is God in his sovereignty, in his control over all things, letting this happen to me? 
And it can be hard to believe that God's going to bring or could bring anything good out of our circumstances. Like I know of a woman who lost her youngest son to cancer when he was 14. That's got to be incredibly painful. Then a few years later, her oldest son took his own life. Like, you look at that and go, how can God bring good out of that? And when you're the one to get the diagnosis, you're the one to lose your job, you're the one to have that relationship break down, you lose the child, that you experience some sort of hardship, it's natural for us to go, God, where are you in this? And and we can go, like, how are you going to bring good out of this? But here's the thing. It's so important to notice this, that Paul does not say that God causes these things. Paul's saying this, that in all things, God knows what he's doing. That in all things, God knows what he's doing. And notice that it's not those whom God loves who are the beneficiaries of this good. Like every person is loved by God. John 3.16 tells us, but Paul's saying, no, it's those whom love, who love God who are the beneficiaries of this good. If you don't respond to God in love, you're not in a position to receive his goodness. Like, it's kind of like this. You can go to a doctor. Maybe you have a pain or something going on, and he's like, okay, here's here's a procedure. Here's here's something that we can do that will help with it. Maybe it's it's, it's, uh, medication of some sort. And often that procedure or that medication, it comes with side effects or there's pain. And it's not necessarily pleasurable, but if we trust the wisdom of the doctor, it often heals us. It will often lead to good. And it's only when we're convinced that God is wise and God is loving and God is good that we trust whatever God allows in our lives is ultimately for our good and is leading to that good to get us home, to make us more like his son. But if you don't trust God, you're not really going to, you're probably going to resent what he's allowing in your life. You might actually start to fight against what God is allowing in your life. Now here's, I'm not going to be up here going, okay, here's how God's going to take all the pain in your life and and explaining how it works. Because I don't understand how God uses it all. Like there's no promise here that the good God's going to do is going to be immediately obvious to us. There's no promise here that we're going to see that good right away. But what, Paul, or what Paul's saying is this. God can take your diagnosis, your loss, your pain, and use it for your good purposes. Like, it could be simple as this. That God's teaching you right now that you aren't God. That, that your wisdom, your strength, it's not enough. And that you need to trust in him. But here's, here's what I would say. is You can look at God's track record, and you can see this, that God can purpose our pain. That all through the scriptures you see that God takes the pain and the suffering of his people and he uses it to refine them, to make them who they are. Like Abraham, Job, Joseph, Moses, David, Paul, Jesus. God uses all of their suffering and the evil against them for a greater good. Like Acts chapter 2 verse 23, Peter prays this, through Jesus, or Though Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, um, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and to kill him. And in this prayer, Peter's saying this, God knew what humanity was going to do in response to his son. He knew what, what Judas would do and Herod would do and, and Pilate would do, and he didn't force them to do it, but he used humanity's rejection and the crucifixion and son's death for humanity's good, knowing it in advance, and he worked it out to the greatest good. He used it to save us. 
Now, if you're a believer, here's, here's something I want to challenge you to do. I want you sometime this week to reflect on your life and those things that you feared would ruin you and see if you can see how God used them for good. Things that you thought would be the ultimate disappointment and disaster in your life, see how God maybe used those for blessings. Like a few weeks ago, I went down to one of the hospitals to visit and pray with somebody um, who was in there. And I hadn't been in that hospital for over two years because they wouldn't let us in because of, of COVID. But as I was walking down the hallway to this person's room, I was like, I, I was just kind of reminded, I was like, man, I've spent a lot of time in, in these hallways. And it was because years ago, my, my wife, Shannon, she was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when we were engaged. And then uh, not long after we got married, uh, she had a flare-up. She got pretty sick, and she was hospitalized for uh, quite a bit of time. And the doctors are trying to figure out what was going on, um, trying to get her healthy again, figure out kind of the treatment and all of this. And man, I was, I was remembering, it's like, man, I, I remember what it's like to be anxious in these times. I know what it's like to wait on these tests and go, how is this, how is this going to turn up or turn out? Like, what, what's, what's going to happen here? And so as I walk into that room with those people, it's like, man, I can sympathize with what's going on, with some of the things that they're feeling. And here's kind of what I'm driving at, is that our pain doesn't have to be pointless, that God can take that and use it for good. But in those long waiting periods with no answers, in the doctor's waiting room, in the hospital bed, in the relationship struggles, in all the pain, you need to go, am I going to approach this with faith? Or am I going to approach it with fear? And please understand, because of where God sits, nothing, nothing that goes on in your life or in this world catches God by surprise. He's not like, I didn't see that one coming. Man, it really got me. Like, he, he sees it all. But when it's not going how we would plan, we need a strong faith in God's character and his wisdom when we're going, I don't, I don't see how you're working here. Like, Romans 8.28 does not mean God's going to order your life into a utopian paradise where there's no pain, no difficulty. What it's saying is that God is orchestrating. He's taking these things and he's working it out towards his intended goal. And so we need to trust that God can purpose our pain, that God can take the worst of our suffering and weave it into something beautiful. I read a story. There was, there was a pastor who at a church, um, they were having the funeral for a 16-year-old boy who had been killed um, just in an accident, just, it was total shock to everybody, and this, this pastor was just wrestling with it, because he's like, I know theologically these things, and we, we confess them, but he, he was wrestling, he was like, God, where are you, and you say you're going to bring good out of this, I don't know how you're going to do it, and he was having a hard time, and he happened to run into an older gentleman from his congregation at a coffee shop, and that guy sat down and kind of talked to him about it all, and, and, and just tried to comfort him, but as this older gentleman was getting up to leave, he said to this young pastor, he said, did I ever tell you how I became a Christian? And the guy said, no, you haven't. He said, when I was a teenager, um, my friend was killed in a car accident when he was 16. And I went to the funeral. And at that funeral, I heard the gospel for the first time. And I, I trusted it. I believed it. And God has changed my life through it. And here's what I want us to know, is that God never wastes our pain. Those things that shake your foundations are things that God is using to build his kingdom. He's using it to get his children home and to make them more like their older brother. 
Like that mother who lost two of her sons, she now is in this unique position to be able to walk with people who are going through similar things. That God took what I would have to believe is one of the most painful things that you could experience, and he's using it to help others, to bring comfort to them. And if you love God, again, I want to I challenge you. Think on your experiences. Consider how God has and can use them for good in your life and the lives of others. That God purposes your pain. Every week here, the elders, we take some time to pray for the needs of our congregation. Um, and we, we have these prayer requests. And if you have a prayer request, just let us know. Fill out a uh, prayer request card online and, or speak to one of us, and we'll gladly pray for you. And I know some of the things that our congregation is walking through right now. They're painful. They're heartbreaking things. But here's the thing. When we pray and when we look at them, we don't give up hope. Because what Jesus has done, he's provided an anchor for our soul. And that one day, the pain of this world is going to give way to a greater glory. And we're going to see, when we're home, looking at it from God's perspective, how he used all the things that were painful and pleasurable for his good purposes.